The year, 1988. The place, Odessa, Texas. The scene of the state high school football championship for the Permian High Panthers. It had been a rough season with ongoing conflicts between players and coaches and mothers and fathers and fans and families. But now, despite all the conflict, one thing brings everyone together, the championship game. It's halftime, and the coach has one last opportunity to unify and inspire his team. Let's watch. Let's go. It's real simple. You got two more quarters and that's it. Now most of you have been playing this game for 10 years. And you got two more quarters and after that most of you will never play this game again as long as you live. Now you all have known me for a while and for a long time now you've been hearing me talk about being perfect. Well I want you to understand something. To me, being perfect it's not about that scoreboard out there. It's not about winning. It's about you and your relationship to yourself and your family and your friends. Being perfect is about being able to look your friends in the eye and know that you didn't let them down because you told them the truth. And that truth is, is that you did everything that you could. There wasn't one more thing that you could have done. Can you live in that moment as best you can with clear eyes and love in your heart? With joy in your heart? If you can do that, gentlemen, then you're perfect. I want you to take a moment and I want you to look each other in the eyes. I want you to put each other in your hearts forever because forever is about to happen here in just a few minutes. I want you to close your eyes and I want you to think about Booby Miles who is your brother. And he would die to be out there on that field with you tonight. And I want you to put that in your hearts. Boys, my heart is full. My heart's full. Ivory. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, and we forgive those who trespass against us. We do not give us our trespasses. 
this high school football coach is trying to inspire and unify his players. And it's interesting what he tells them, that the most important thing is to get out there on that football field and give it all that they've got and to keep each other in their hearts forever. 2,000 years ago, a man named Paul, a follower of Jesus, was writing a letter to a group of Christians in the city of Ephesus, and he was trying to unify them and to inspire them. And he said something very similar. He told them that to follow Jesus, they need to give it all they've got. And to follow Jesus, they need to keep each other in their hearts forever. Today we're continuing our study of that book of Ephesians, and the study's called We Are the Church. Today we're going to focus on the topic of unity. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provided for you, you'll find these verses on page 948. I think it's important to note that in this brief letter, the word unity is mentioned 18 times. Now, you might think that the author, Paul, is repeating himself, and if that's what you think, you're exactly right, and there's a good reason for that. Because for Paul, as well as for Jesus, unity is not just a good thing. Unity is an essential thing. Just before he died, just before Jesus went to the cross, he prayed for the people who would carry on his mission in this world. And he didn't pray for big buildings, he didn't pray for great administrative skill, he didn't pray for creative marketing. He prayed for one thing, unity. Look at these verses from John chapter 17, where Jesus says this, my prayer is not for them alone. Now that is a reference to the 12 disciples that are with him. And he's talking to God, his Father. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Do you realize that Jesus, the night before he died on the cross, was actually praying for you and for me? Because this message has been handed down from one generation to the next. Jesus is praying for us. And he says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. And here's his prayer, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. If we're going to be the church that Jesus wants us to be, if we're going to be the church that Jesus prayed for us to be, we need to be serious and intentional about unity. And that's what the Apostle Paul writes about here in chapter 4 of Ephesians, beginning with verse 1. He says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then Paul goes on in verse 4 to talk about the reasons for our unity. He says this, There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, in these few verses, we can learn a great deal about unity. And here's the first thing I want you to see. This is on your outline God creates unity in the church, and it is our responsibility to make every effort to keep this unity. God creates the unity. It's our responsibility to make every effort to keep this unity. Look at verse 3 again. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, when it comes to unity, God really is our model. The Bible teaches there is one God that exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And God is in 
complete unity and harmony with himself. And the unity of his church is incredibly important to God. And that's why Paul begins this statement this way. Make every effort. This is a really intense word. um, A word that involves great passion. It means to give something everything you've got. Um, and that involves your will, your reason, your, your emotions, even your physical strength. During the American Revolution, Benjamin Franklin said this, we must all hang together or we shall all hang separately. That's the kind of intensity that Paul brings to this topic of unity. He's saying, church, we have got to learn to hang together. And I want you to notice how Paul begins verse one. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, Now remember that Paul is in prison, probably in Rome, as he writes this letter. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. At the beginning of the service, I was talking about the word church. In the original language of the Bible, the word church means the called out ones. And that's who believers are. We've been called out of darkness, the Bible says, into God's marvelous light. And God wants us to live in a manner worthy of that calling. Sheldon Van Auken wrote this, The best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their hope, their love for each other. Guess what he said is the best argument against Christianity? Yeah, Christians, when they are smug, self-righteous, and divisive. Gandhi said this one time. He said that he would love to become a Christian. He was just waiting to meet somebody who sincerely lived out the things that Jesus taught. So church, how can we live out what Jesus taught in a way that brings unity? Well, first of all, this is on your outline, we need to be humble. Look at verse two. Paul says, be completely humble. Now, what word is the opposite of humility? Five letters, yeah, pride. And what is the middle letter in the word pride? I. And the proud person is concerned about what I want, what I need, what I think, what I like. And the humble person is just the opposite. Instead of focusing on themselves, they're focused on others. Now think about this. Pride builds walls between people. Isn't that true? When we're self-centered and self-focused. But when people are humble, when they're concerned about others, when people are honest about the stuff in their lives. How many of you have any stuff in your life? When we're honest about our faults and our failures and our flaws, that really connects people, doesn't it? It brings about this sense that we're in life together and that promotes the unity that that Paul's writing about here now here's the second thing another key to unity be gentle be completely humble and gentle this word gentle is also translated meek and Jesus said one time the meek shall inherit the earth now there's a lot of confusion about this idea of meekness Um, a lot of guys really hate that word because they think that you know being meek means being weak and it's just the opposite A person who is meek is somebody who has strength under control. To be a meek person, you have to be the master of yourself so that you can serve others. That's what it means to be meek or to be gentle. And here's a third third key to unity. Be patient. Be patient. There was a little boy and he was sitting on the steps of his house and he was looking really upset and he had his face in his hands. His dad comes home from work and His dad says, son, what's wrong? And he said, well, dad, just between the two of us, I've been having trouble all day long with your wife. (laughs) 
We all know that family relationships require a lot. Require what? A lot of patience. And that's true in church families as well. Listen, this should not come as a newsflash, but in a church family, there are believers who will disappoint you and let you down. But here's what we need to remember. We are family. And so when our feelings are hurt, when we're upset with one another, God doesn't want us to walk out on our family. He wants us to work it out. And friends, I know there's a lot of, a lot of reasons that people are disillusioned by the church. I've talked to people on, on so many occasions who said, well, you know, the church is full of, yeah, hypocrites. You know, there's, there's conflict in the church, and, and church people sometimes just don't even take care of each other, and there's legalism, and there's, there's just all this stuff, and the list could go on and on, right? But we should not be shocked by these things. In fact, we should realize this. The church is made up of imperfect people like you and me. People who struggle, people who fail, people who need grace, people who need forgiveness, people with whom we should be patient. And let me ask you this. Why is God patient with you? Why is God patient with you? What do you think? Because he loves you, exactly. In fact, if you look at that passage in 1 Corinthians 13, the, the passage about love, the first characteristic of love is this. Love is patient. And if you're a parent, you know that love has to be patient. Now, why are, why are parents patient with their kids? Well, hopefully, first of all, because they love their children, but there's another reason that parents are patient with their kids because they have this hope that someday my child is going to grow up and change. Isn't that true? So why should we be patient with each other? Really for the same reasons, right? Because we love each other and because there is this hope that we can grow up and change. Because here's the reality. Can you change me? No, can I change you? Can you change the person you're married to? Or you know, can you change your brother, your sister? No, we can't change each other, but God can. God can change us. And, and here's the deal. Um, I was thinking about this bumper sticker that was on cars years ago, be patient, God isn't finished with me yet. Ever see that? Isn't that true? I mean, we're all a work in progress. That God is still working on us. And sometimes, sometimes I find myself thinking this way, and maybe you do too. I look at somebody and think, man, they've got a long way to go. You ever think that? Yeah. And sometimes it's almost like God taps me on the shoulder and says, yeah, but do you realize how far they've already come? God wants us to be patient because he's still working on us. And when it comes to being patient, the word patient in the Bible means to take a deep breath. And I can just imagine God looking at me sometimes going, oh, he's doing it again. But God is patient. Somebody said one time, you know, what you need to do is, you know, just take a deep breath and count to 10. Thomas Jefferson said this, if somebody really exasperates you, take a deep breath and count to 100. And sometimes that's exactly what we need to do. So, Three important keys to unity are be humble, be gentle, and be patient with each other. And now, as Paul continues, he's going to point out seven specific reasons for unity. And this is really interesting because in the Jewish culture, seven is the number of perfection. And the big idea is this. We need to focus on the things that we have in common rather than on our differences. So what is it that followers of Jesus Christ have in common? And listen, if you're somebody who's here and you're checking out Christianity or you have questions about Christianity and you've never trusted Jesus, I am so glad you're here. And I hope that as we talk about these reasons for unity, you'll get a better understanding of what God's family should look like. 
And you'll also understand how God wants you to be a part of that very family. So, seven good reasons for unity. First of all, we are one body. That's on your outline. We're one body. Paul says there is one body. Now, you've heard this metaphor. The church is the body of Christ, the body of Christ. Now, your body has different parts, obviously. And if your body wants to do anything, the parts of the body have to work together. Now, let me see if I can illustrate this. How many of you ever wake up in the middle of the night and you're hungry? Happens to me all the time. Now, just think, think with me through this. Um, your stomach is really hungry, so it sends a signal to the brain. Says, hey, I'm, I'm really hungry. And the brain sends a signal to the feet and says, feet, you need to get out of bed because the stomach is hungry. And the feet say, no way, man. I'm perfectly comfortable right where I am. And the brain says, listen, if you don't get out of bed, the stomach's going to growl all night long and keep all of us up, so get on the floor. So the feet just get down on the floor and take your whole body over to the kitchen and you come over to the refrigerator. Now, other parts of your body have to cooperate, right? Because you can't open the door unless your arm does something and your, your hand has to reach in and grab that container of Greek yogurt. And uh, you have to pick up a spoon and then your mouth has to do what? It has to open up so the food can get to the stomach. And when it finally does, the stomach is happy. And now because the stomach is happy, the whole body can go back to bed and get some rest. Now, isn't that interesting? In order to accomplish a mission, the body has to do what? It has to work together. And Paul makes the argument, we are members of one body. There are things that God wants us to do, and we're all responsible to do them. Let me ask you this. Who is responsible for the growth of our church? Is it just the pastor or the leaders or the staff? Who's responsible for the growth of the church? What, what's the answer? Yeah, we all are, every single one of us, because we're members of one body. Who's responsible for the spiritual health of our church? Yeah, we all are. Who's responsible for the financial health of the church? We all are because we're members of one body. How many of you have ever heard of the 80-20 principle when it comes to organizations. Yeah, a lot of us have, that you know, 80% of the work is generally done by 20% of the people. That should never be true in the church because the church is not just an organization. The church is an organism. It is one body in Christ. So the first reason for our unity, one body. Here's the second, one spirit. One spirit. Now, we all know that there's great diversity in the church. And let me just do this. This is sort of a quick survey to show you that there's diversity right here in this room. How many of you, and you can raise your hand for this, how many of you are um, under 39 years of age? Just raise your hand. How many of you are over 39 years of age? Remember, it's not good to lie in church now. Okay, how many of you grew up as an only child? How many of you have brothers and sisters? How many of you speak only English? How many of you speak a, a language in addition to English? Uh, how many of you were born east of the Mississippi River? How many of you were born west of the Mississippi River? How many of you have no idea where the Mississippi River is? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we could go on and on, but it, isn't it true there is incredible diversity right here in this room? Now, what is able to hold diverse people together and what Paul says is there is one spirit he's referring to God's Holy Spirit because when you become a follower of Jesus Christ the Spirit of God lives in you and remember how Paul starts out he says be humble be gentle be patient who enables us to do that it's God's Holy Spirit 
And so this spirit takes all these diverse, different people and brings them together in unity by enabling them to carry out the commands of Christ. Isn't that incredible? Now here's another reason for our unity. One hope. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called. Now, a few weeks ago I was talking about hope and I gave you a working definition that hope is the confident expectation that God will do what he is what? Yes, I heard somebody say it. He'll do what he's promised. Now, think about this. Does God make one promise to Tim and another promise to John? No. If you're a member of God's family, you have inherited all of God's promises. God, God says, listen, I will forgive your sins and remember them no more. That's a promise for every believer. God says, listen, a day is coming when all the pain and suffering in this world will be over. That's a promise for every follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, when you sign up to follow Jesus, God says, I'm going to provide everything that is necessary to accomplish my purpose for your life. That's a promise that all of us have in common as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ. And it is those common promises that give us what? Hope. And that hope binds us together. Now here's another, another reason, the next reason for unity. One Lord. One Lord. And that's what Paul goes on to point out. There's one Lord. Now the Lord, um, the word Lord can be translated master. And a master is somebody that you what? You obey. Somebody you obey. And what Paul is saying here is that our unity depends on a common commitment to obey the commands of Christ. And this is critically important. Now, imagine this. Imagine you're watching a football game and the quarterback throws a pass to the wide receiver. And before the wide receiver catches the ball, he gets hit by the defensive back, knocked out of bounds. What's going to happen? The referee's going to throw a flag. Now, is it possible that the coaches and players are going to disagree with the call on the field? Yeah, does that ever happen in upward sports, by the way? We have some great refs. That's, that's a whole different experience. But sometimes there's disagreement. It's handled differently. But think about this. That referee is the master of the gridiron. He's the master of the field. And the reason that the game can keep on going is because the players and the coaches have made a common commitment to obey his commands and to abide by his rulings. Isn't that true? Now let's take this whole idea of, of obeying a master and walk over here and talk about marriage. Now, if you've been married for any length of time, have you ever experienced any conflict in your relationship? Okay, any disagreements about how to raise the kids, where to spend the holidays, my in-laws, your in-laws, um, disagreements about how to spend money. I mean, there's all kinds of things that, that we could have disagreements on. Isn't that true? And even conflict. Now, wouldn't it be great if there was a, a marriage referee? Seriously, if you had somebody you could go to and say, listen, we have this disagreement here. Could you make a call? Could you give us a ruling on the field and we'll go ahead and abide by it? Do you realize and I'm not making this up, that there is a marriage referee and his name is Jesus. And this is incredibly important. I was talking with a couple just a few weeks ago and they have like stars in their eyes because they want to be married. I'm, they're just, they're in love and they're excited. And, and I talked to them about, you know, being a follower of Jesus and both of them said, you know, we have this, this desire to follow Jesus. And I said, that is so great 
Because that common commitment to Jesus as your Lord and Master will give you a solid foundation for your marriage. Because he's going to be your referee. Because there's going to be conflict and there's going to be disagreements and disputes. And church, I'll tell you this. I've been married for, for a lot of years. And I can honestly say that I don't think my wife Chris and I would be married today without a common commitment to the Lordship of Christ. Because that common commitment to the Lordship of Christ holds a marriage together. And listen carefully, it holds a church together as well. I've been involved in, in church leadership for almost as long as I've been married. Not only in this church, but before I was the pastor here, I've served as an elder in another church for, for quite a number of years. And I have seen so much conflict in the church. I really have. And I've seen conflict that was handled so well. And I've, I've seen conflict that was handled so poorly where people were hurt and even damaged. And I will tell you the difference. Conflict that is handled well is when church leaders and church members know what God says in the Bible, they are willing to obey what God says in the Bible. And here's the reason. Because they have a common commitment to Jesus Christ as their Lord. And that makes all the difference. And that protects and promotes the unity of the church. Here's another reason for unity. It's number five, one faith. One faith. That's the next thing that Paul talks about. Now, at the time this letter was written, there were so many things that people believed in the first century. There were mystery cults. There were all kinds of perspectives on God and morality and religion, a lot like there is today. And into this culture comes this, this Jewish rabbi named Jesus the Christ. And he says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now that was a radical statement, wasn't it? And many of the people in the Jewish nation were shocked when Jesus said that. They thought the way to earn God's grace and favor was by keeping the law. But Jesus was pointing out, no, the law just shows you how far you fall short of God's standard for your life. And here's what we need to realize. Christianity is founded on this principle that the only way a person can be right with God, the only way, is through faith in Christ. And Jesus himself said that. And here's the reality. Jesus came to our world on a rescue mission. Why? Because we need to be rescued. We have walked away from God, from his purpose and his plan, and the Bible calls that sin. All of us are in the same leaky boat when it comes to sin. Because God is holy and we're sinful, there's a separation between us and God. And because God is just, he can't just look the other way and say, it's, it's not a big deal. I'll just give you another chance. No, he has to punish every sin we've ever committed. And that punishment, according to the Bible, is to die and to be separated from God forever. Now, Christians around the world in every culture and every nation can agree to that. Because that's the gospel. That's the bad news part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's the good news, the incredibly good news that Christians all over the world agree on and embrace, that God the Father, out of his great love, sent God the Son, Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, to be our Messiah. In fact, the word Jesus Christ, the word Christ means Messiah, the one sent by God to save his people from their sins. And so Jesus comes to our world, and he lives a perfect life, and then he voluntarily dies for us. And on the cross, God is willing to do this, to put your sin and my sin on Jesus and punish him in our place. 
The wrath of God that we deserved is poured out on Jesus. He dies for us, and then God raises him to life. And that's the story of this book. And there is so much historical evidence to document these facts of history. Christ lived a perfect life. He died. He rose from the dead. And when we come to Jesus and we say, Lord, you know, I believe that you're who you claim to be. And I'm a sinner and I need a savior and and I want to follow you. Jesus says, welcome to the family. But realize this, it is one faith, one faith in Jesus Christ that makes us family, that brings about unity. And that leads to the next thing, one baptism. One baptism. Now, there's all kinds of stuff that divides the church. Isn't that true? Um, Sometimes churches even split over issues related to baptism. And I think that's really, really sad because sometimes people say, well, here's the way you should be baptized or I don't agree with this. Here's the deal. I had a a friend who was a pastor and he said this to me one time. He said, Dudley, I don't care how people get baptized. I'll baptize people with a fire hose. (laughs) And he was kidding, of course. I think he was kidding. But here was his point. You know, the Bible talks about different... um, Ways to baptize people. Um, Sometimes people are baptized by immersion, by going all the way under the water, and the symbolism is being buried and raised with Christ. Sometimes water is sprinkled on people's heads, and that's because of the rites of purification in the Old Testament. Sometimes people are baptized with water being poured over their head because it talks about in the Bible the Spirit of God being poured out. But here's the thing. The essential symbolism of baptism is exactly the same. The water symbolizes the fact that your sins have been washed away, that you're now a member of God's family because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you to do this. If if you're married this morning and have a wedding ring, would you take off your wedding ring? Can you do that? Might be a little hard. Mine's been on my finger quite some time. In fact, it's no longer round. Now, here's the question. If, If we take off our wedding rings, are we still married? I hope so. And see, I I don't have my wedding ring on now, but but I'm still married. Why? Because of a commitment in my heart that I made to my wife. I took a wedding vow. Now, that ring is just a symbol. I got this ring on the day that I said I do. It's a symbol of my commitment. It's an outward sign of an inward reality. Baptism works the same way. It's an outward sign that you have made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus commanded us to go into all the world, make disciples, and he said, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a sign and a symbol of inclusion in God's family. It's a sign of our unity, and that's what Paul's talking about. And that brings us to the last reason for our unity, and this is such a beautiful statement. There is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This week as I was working on the message, I was thinking about this this phrase and tomorrow morning, about six o'clock, my wife and I are planning on flying to Columbia, South America. And we're really excited about our trip. We're so thankful to be a part of this team from Voice of the Martyrs. And we're going there to conduct a conference for persecuted pastors and their families because they're bringing their wives and their kids And last count, um, we're expecting between 300 and 350 people. So it's a big group. But these are pastors and families that have undergone intense persecution. As you know, many of these pastors uh, have been murdered by the communist guerrillas over the last several years. 
Many of these families um, have lost children. The children have been kidnapped or killed by the communist guerrillas as well. And so our team is going there to encourage them, to pray with them, to worship with them, to, to teach them. We're taking a whole bunch of study Bibles for these pastors and school supplies to encourage the kids. And I am, I am so thankful, church, that you're sending me and Chris and that you're going to be praying for us. We really know that. We appreciate that. And one of the reasons that I'm so excited about the trip is every time that I go outside the United States on a missions trip, every time that I have the chance to, to be with Christians in other parts of the world, there is this amazing connection that, that I experience. It's sort of like, you know, I can meet a, a believer in another part of the world for the very first time, and it's like we're old friends. And it's because the same Holy Spirit that lives in me lives in them. And it's exactly what Paul was talking about. There is one hope and one faith. There is one Lord. There is one baptism. There is one God and Father of us all. And I'm just so thankful to be able to, to go to South America and encourage these pastors and to experience that, that unity because honestly, that's like a glimpse of heaven. When we get home to heaven, there's not going to be, you know, Methodists. Methodists over here, Presbyterians over here, Baptists. That, that's not going to be the case at all. All God's children together in this perfect unity. And that is a, a picture of that. And I want to say this too. I've not only experienced this, this unity outside the U.S. During the years that I've been the pastor here, I am so very thankful for the unity that I've experienced here. The heart-to-heart -heart connection with other believers who have a common commitment to follow Jesus. And do you remember we started out by saying that God creates unity? And it's our responsibility to protect, to guard, to work hard, to preserve our unity. And, and I pray, church, I, really, I was praying this this morning, I pray it all the time, that God will enable us to make that commitment to him and to each other, to work together and pray together and worship together and reach out together, to have the kind of unity that Jesus prayed for and the kind of unity that Jesus died for. Let me close with, with this story. A few years ago at the Special Olympics in Seattle, nine runners took their places at the starting line for the 100-meter run. All of these runners were mentally and physically challenged in some way. At the sound of the gun, all the runners took off, except for one boy who stumbled, rolled over a few times, and fell down. Lying there on the track, he started to cry, and when the other runners heard him cry... They turned around and stopped running. And then they came back, every single one of them, to help this boy who had fallen down. One girl with Down syndrome bent down and kissed the boy and said, that'll make it better. Then all nine of them linked arms and walked together to the finish line. And everyone in the stadium stood and cheered for a solid 10 minutes. Isn't that a great picture of unity? because all of us are challenged in one way or another, aren't we? And when we stumble and when we fall down, God wants us not to keep running ahead, but to come back and help each other up so that arm in arm we can move toward that goal that God has in mind for us so that together we can run the race that God has marked out for us. And church, as we do that, a watching world will see our love for each other They'll witness our unity with each other. And our lives will point them to Jesus. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for, for your word. Thank you for your spirit. God, thank you for all these things that bind us together in unity. And Father, I, I prayed this morning, God, for the one who maybe has listened to this message and they kind of feel like an outsider because they've never really come to that point of trusting Jesus and maybe they still have questions and God, I pray that you would answer those questions because Lord, the, the fact is this, we didn't give ourselves faith, that came as a gift from you and I pray that you would give the one who is seeking the truth, the gift of faith this morning so that they can open their heart and believe that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be and surrender their life to him. And God, I want to pray too right now for those who are going through just some tough times, some challenges. Because Lord, just like that story of the Special Olympics, sometimes we're just in a tough spot and we need other people to come back and, and take our hand and help us up and encourage us. And I pray that we would be that kind of church, God, that there would be that kind of unity. Because you call us, God, to, to walk by faith and not by sight, but we're not supposed to walk alone. And so when life is hard, Jesus, help us to walk with each other and to walk with you. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.